When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 115. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On this episode, I chat with a fantastically wonderful and well-versed historian, Heather R. Darcy. Now be prepared because Heather and I handled two topics that I don't believe I've ever covered before, but which are very important to understand for any Tudor lover. Money and plague. Then on Ask the Expert, we're joined by Joanna Arman to answer your questions on the consort of Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou. And lastly, on a brief history, I tell you about a few wicked Tudor women. Now, before we jump into all those amazing topics, I must welcome my newest patrons, Valerie C., Brooke S., UCLA Goldie, Sean H., Valerie C., and B-word. And of course, all my extremely generous existing patrons as well. Now, a full list of patrons can be found on my podcast website, which is tutorsdynastypodcast.com. Now, if you'd like to show your support, it would be greatly appreciated. Patrons receive access to the tutor course. They get exclusive content from the podcast. And you also might have the opportunity to get some free books. We got some computer and mobile wallpaper, bookmarks, and so much more. Now, you can find me on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty. And then click become a patron just to see the options. All the money that comes my way goes back into the cost of running the show, research materials, and the like. So thank you very much. All right, so let's get on with the show. Heather, welcome back to the show. It's nice to be here. How are you doing? You know, I am doing great, and it's always a, a fantastic episode when I get to have one of my best friends on as a guest. So thank you. You bet. Uh, the one thing that you probably don't realize is that being on this episode, well, first of all, this is um, my regular season finale. So going forward for the rest of the summer, um, you're going to get some truncated version of the podcast. But anyway, what you Does probably mean we can expect other things from you. We'll see. <laughs> All right, fingers crossed. <laughs> but the exciting thing, this is probably a surprise for you. You are setting a record on this episode because this is your sixth visit to the show. Is it really? It is. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... Thank you for tolerating me all six times. I hope, I... <laughs> I hope you guys aren't sick of hearing me yet. I feel like I need to give you a jacket, like on Saturday Night Live, when like Alec Baldwin, you know, had his, I don't know, fourth or fifth episode that he did. He got a special jacket and got to go into a special room. I feel like I need one of those rooms just so you can go in it. Well, I'm in a special room, as it were, right now. I've decided to record this one outside so that uh, we are not beset by tiny crying parrots in the background so <laughs> we love the parrots 
Well, we, I wanted to really have you back today um, yeah. because I have such a broad range of topics that I want to discuss with you. Most of them are surrounded around Henry VIII. Um, so I really want to talk about first, let's just start from the beginning. Really, when it comes to Henry VIII, uh, there's two perceptions of him, right? You either love him or you hate him. Um, he was a great monarch or he was a terrible monarch. And one of the things that I feel like people forget about him, and I've written about this before, is that, you know, one of the positive things that Henry did under his reign was that he grew the Tudor Navy from the five ships that his father had built to more than 40 ships, which is pretty amazing. He created the Church of England, um, and he was also considered a prolific builder, but most people remember him as the murderer of two of his wives. They don't consider the fact that he did positive things. But the one topic that's rarely spoken of when people wish to to, to besmirch Henry's character um, is the great con that he pulled on his subjects, which was the great debasement. So before we dive too deep into that subject, let's just talk real quick about Tudor money. And because all I really know is that a pound actually weighed a pound. What else should we really know to kind of get a base for this subject? The the Tudor currency, coins in the Tudor period were made of usually silver or gold, and they had different weights and different grades of fineness. We also see that with our money today, but it's it's slightly different in that the value of a coin was genuinely based off its fine metal content, whereas now we run on something usually, at least the U.S., I think the U.K. also runs off this, but it's fiat currency, so it's more... The value given to money is what's supported by the economy rather than it being backed by the pureness of the coins, because, of course, most of our money these days is paper based or, frankly, electronically based. But during the during Henry VIII's reign, he actually changed the purity of his coins, the fineness of his coins to try and save money and perhaps I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but it also resulted in inflating prices in England. Yeah, before we go too far on that, um, just for listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with the names of the different coins during the Tudor period, we had the pound. What else was there? There was actually there was the penny. There was a groat. There was an angel, a half sovereign and a sovereign. Mm, I've never heard of the angel before. That I believe might have been introduced by his father. OK, so a little more research I can do there on that one. Yeah, I'd have to double check that. Okay. Um, so, you know how it is when you talk to me occasionally, I'll just go on tangents off of the subject that we were originally talking about. But this really, this whole subject got me thinking because obviously in the U.S., um, we have paper bills, we have presidents on the bills. Mm-hmm. We're not a monarchy. Richard III died in battle. So to me, this is it's kind of a unique situation, and I hope you get where I'm going with this. But after Richard III died in battle, what happened to his coins? I mean, could people still keep them and use them, or would they have to, like, turn them in and have new coins minted? My impression, and I'm, I'm happy to have anybody augment this statement in the comments, is that while the money still held its value so long as it well, because it was made of fine metals, because it was made of fine silver and made of, of gold, 
I'm under the impression that the currency would slowly be switched over. So it wasn't a, a situation where you had to turn in all of your currency all at once, and then you were given currency with the new monarch's face on it, so much as over time it was, it just slowly disappeared out of circulation. So when I think about an American example, we have these uh, quarters from 1975, the bicentennial of America, that have a patriotic or an 18th century style drummer on the mm-hmm. back. And those quarters are no longer in circulation for the most part because they've either been destroyed by the U.S. Mint as they collect them because they're too tarnished or too damaged or they're kept by individual people. Same thing with the the American wheat penny, which has been out of circulation for quite some time. Um, you still see them every once in a great while, but for the most part, they've been taken out either by the U.S. Mint solely or by individual persons. Now, we know that when Henry VII died, he left his son with a a treasury full of money. Um, We also know that Henry VIII loved to do everything in the grandest fashion. So do you know when exactly did Henry VIII's spending become a problem? When did it get to the point where the Great Debasement began? Well, the Great Debasement itself started in the 1540s, and I suspect— that it was driven in part by his latest war with, with France. And I think, too, if I remember correctly, there were some issues with silver production within England and Wales. The main silver mines had stopped producing as much or perhaps were even shut down by that time or for whatever reason weren't as productive. So having access to raw silver to actually make coins became increasingly difficult during Henry's reign. So I'm under the impression that while he certainly spent a lot of his dad's money and did a very good job doing it and really liked engaging in expensive foreign wars. There are a couple of different things happening that led to him and thereby his government deciding to debase the coins. What would you say is the benefit and the drawback of debasing coins? I don't know that there is a benefit. So in theory, the way that I think the way that Henry saw it is that, so when you reduce the fineness of a coin, so right now we think of silver being 92.5% fine. So his silver coins, which I believe were the the penny and the groat, um, I believe those are the two silver coins and those are the most common ones. And also maybe the testoon, that was another coin that he used. Anyway, those are made of silver. And by reducing their fineness from 92.5% down to, I think it got as low with one of the coins as 25% fineness of silver, Henry was able to keep more silver in his treasury. So he was able to retain more silver. So in that way, it was good for the government because they had more value in what they held. However, for the economy of England, you have all these coins that just don't have as much buying power as before because they were mixed with copper. Um, This was also Henry got the nickname Old Copper Nose because when you kept the debased silver coins in your pocket, the nose would rub in your pocket and then eventually the copper would shine (laughs) through. But um, anyway, so when you have debased currency in your economy, it it gives the impression that there's actually more money circulating in your economy. So the other thing that was able to happen or that was enabled by the debasement was that there was more physical money making it as appear as though the English economy was able to support more money than it really could. Benefit to Henry and the government, they got to keep more money in their coffers and in theory inject, give the appearance of injecting more money into the English economy, thereby on, on a very, very surface level, 
making it appear larger. Drawback for the common person is the value of their money went down and inflation skyrocketed. So is it fair to say that essentially he was stealing from his subjects? I'm not sure how to answer that. I don't know <laughs> that he was stealing from them so much as he wasn't giving to them. Yeah, Maybe in the mo- the simplest of terms, he was stealing from them since the value of their coin um, was not what it had been prior to that. Yeah. Yeah, I just simplified the great debasement. <laughs> yeah. Henry, stealing from his people to support his expensive wars right. and his need budget. Yep. Don't listen to me. Listen to Heather. <laughs> she knows better. Okay. So okay, so we know now in the simplest of terms that Henry VIII stole from his subjects. Yeah. How did the great debasement play out then? How long did it last? Oh, it continued during Edward the Sixth reign. Um Mary the First didn't really do anything to adjust it, and it wasn't until I think the fifteen seventies that Elizabeth actually fixed it. Wow. That's a long time. So thirty years. Yeah. Wow. And I should say there were more coins than the ones that I mentioned, but the ones that I mentioned, I believe, are the only ones that were really messed with. So mm-hmm. there was a sovereign, the half sovereign, which I think it was the sovereign. I misspoke earlier. It was the sovereign that was created by Henry VII. And it was almost like a big metal or like a memorial coin and that was made of gold. The half sovereign, the angel, the half angel, the quarter angel, the crown, the half crown. Those are all made of gold. And then um, the farthing and the half penny or hay penny, if you see that or hear that, penny and groat, half groat, testoon, I think all those were made of silver. And those are the ones that most people have are the silver coins. Hmm, I was That was my next question because I was just thinking, you know, we see online all the time people that go out with their metal detectors and find coins. Are they, mm-hmm. are they finding coins from the Great Debasement? Are the metal detectors even able to pick that up? I don't know how to metal how a metal detector works. So why, Heather, theory, why not? <laughs> I know, right? Why don't I know science? Um, well, I, I guess in theory, it depends on what type of metals it picks up. If it picks up all metals because there's a density, I'm just I'm just chatting at this point. I don't know anything about yeah. metals. There's detectors, probably somebody listening right now who's like, "That is not how they work." You guys, stop <laughs> talking. <laughs> well, yeah, if there's some sort of a density type thing that is how metal is detected then maybe i'm not sure and i don't know yeah i just don't know how they work like if metal detectors are radar based then i would assume that they'd be able to pick up on coins because it would show a dense object in the ground but if there's some other magical ionization thing happening then i have no idea i really don't well if you know let us know because i'm very (laughs) interested like i want to go online and now start searching for tudor coins to see what they say like can you find a copper nose are they for sale? Has somebody? I'm gonna have to go look. These yeah, are- and I wonder what they'd be. I wonder what they'd be worth. Right. But I know that there are some that still exist. There are some of those coins that still exist. I just don't know how common they are to find because mm. there's a bunch of coins. Isn't it Elizabeth the first? There's a whole bunch of her coins still around because she was queen for so long. Mm, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm done talking about the Great Debasement. I've learned all I need. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do. Need- I, I mean, if you want to keep talking about inflation and stuff, I could go all day long. But, uh, you know, I think that those are the broad strokes. Basically that Henry was running low on money. There's a couple different reasons that were impacting that. First of all, he really liked to spend money. Secondly, he was engaging in foreign wars. Um, thirdly, all the all the positive that you, positives that you mentioned, such as building up the Navy, all the building projects he engaged mm-hmm. in, and also possibly having a depletion of access to, to raw silver for with which he could make coins or coins could be minted. Um, 
And all those things led to the great debasement. And unfortunately, it caused a large degree of inflation. And this inflation continued, or at least did not get any better during the reigns of Edward VI, Mary I, or the first part of Elizabeth's reign before everything was sorted and restored. I mean, he really had to been spending a lot of money. I mean, he he gained a lot of wealth from the dissolution of the monasteries. So good grief. He easily spent a billion pounds, I think, in modern money on renovating Hampton Court. Wow. Wow. What He's just fascinating to me. People can hate him, but there's just something that's so intriguing about Henry VIII. Like, you can't stop learning about him. I always feel like I turn another corner and I learn something new. I have to tell you, I think it's important to learn about Henry VIII outside the context of the six wives, because I don't, I I personally, and this is a very unpopular opinion, I don't see him as the evil person that he's made out to be. I'm not saying he was a good guy, and there's definitely some shady things that he did with Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, of course, but to me, it seemed like he really tried to put England first as much as he could. Well, that's fantastic because, you know, he reigned 38 years. So I feel like he was doing something right. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, um, but I think moving forward for everyone who wants to say that Henry VIII was this horrible, evil person and that he had a a traumatic brain injury and was narcissistic and all those good things, that's not necessarily untrue, but let's look at what else he did and look at him as a whole person rather than a megalomaniac narcissist. Right. Yeah, exactly. There were reasons why he did the things he did, and he was also raised a certain way. That's always something I feel like I have to remind people is, like, he wasn't raised to be, you know, king. He did not expect that, and the fact that he had to start his training later than his brother did, he was at a little bit of a disadvantage that way, I think. I Yeah, I would think so, and who knows what complexes, if I can use that word, he might have had from having grown up in his brother's shadow. Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah. Henry, I don't know that he—he he probably would have gone into an ecclesiastical career if Arthur would have lived. Right. How different history would have been then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think we should talk about a subject that's timely and something that you are currently researching Um, let's talk a little bit, you know, obviously we are going through a pandemic now and hopefully wherever you are, it's starting to wrap up. I know there are still some countries really struggling. Um, let's talk about what it was like in the time of the Tudors, because this is another subject that I feel isn't covered very often. You know, we had, you know, if you're, if you're going to talk about an epidemic or a pandemic, what are the illnesses that come, uh, you know, to the top of your head, Heather? Absolutely the plague. The plague is something that it struck Western Europe in the 1340s, and it never really went or didn't go away for a very long time. And specific to England, I think about this, the mysterious sweating sickness. And that then also makes me think of various flu epidemics. Let's say it's, you know, Henry VIII, he's at court, and somebody comes in and warns him that the plague, there's an outbreak. Do we have any idea of how that process worked prior to the king being notified? Like, how did that build momentum to the point where Henry was like, we got to move to the country? 
Well, sometimes it didn't, which is the really interesting thing. So I'm going to skip forward a bit to Elizabeth I's reign. So part of what I've been researching for, it's a paper I'm writing for school, you guys, I'm finishing my master's still. But anyway, um, part of what I've been researching is specifically plague responses in London and Westminster, because I'm looking more at the this, this cities, um, almost kind of personifying the cities and how they behave rather than the specific monarchs. But what's really, really curious is you could have a disease outbreak somewhere, but it wasn't bad enough for anyone to notice and then write to London and say, hey, we have a problem, but it could be outbreaking everywhere. There could be an outbreak everywhere. So for example, in the 1560s with the outbreak of the Black Death or Black Plague in, I believe is 1563, there were lots of people who weren't reporting it to London because they didn't realize it was an issue. But in London, it killed something like 20,000 people between London and Westminster and the Liberties of London in 1563 alone, which is just wow. a tremendous number of the population. So I was reading a document, actually it was yesterday, where they recorded, they being, I believe they were clergy, people assigned to, to sort this within their parishes, they recorded about 23,000 deaths from disease during the year of 1563, and 20,000 of them died specifically from plague. And there wasn't a very good reporting system at all. There weren't really censuses taken during the reign of Henry VIII until the very end. There was an attempt at a census in 1546, I believe, but I don't recall that the results were very profound. And there was not really any type of legislation or anything put in place to deal with it. So you don't really see plague orders, if you will, until the reign of Elizabeth. One other thing that I think is kind of interesting is that the Tudor dynasty actually started with the plague. They brought in, not the plague, but they brought in an epidemic after Henry VII landed in August of 1485 before the Battle of Bosworth. It's thought that he brought with him a strain of influenza from the continent. And so by mid-September of 1585, excuse me, 1485. You guys, I always say 15 because I just have the 16th century <laughs> stuck in my brain so bad. So if I misspeak, I really apologize. But by mid-September of 1485, there was an, an epidemic of influenza. And then when you move forward throughout the 15th and into the 16th century, there is the mysterious disease of the sweating sickness or the English sweat no one knows what it was. There are some people who argue that it was some sort of virus that was carried perhaps by vermin or by animals in the woods because it was mostly noblemen who were afflicted with it and it was thought that they were out hunting and so they came in contact with this weird virus and, and brought it back. Or perhaps it was bacteria, I don't know. But And there's also some people who think that it might have been a strain of flu, a very, very virulent strain of flu, but nobody really knows what it was. The English sweat did, interestingly, make it all the way to Germany. I believe that was in the late 1530s, and it was a serious issue. They, uh, there, was, there were merchant connections between London and the Netherlands, so I believe it was Antwerp, and there was an outbreak of the sweating sickness there, and then it spread down into Germany and might have actually impacted the areas over which Anna of Cleves' family governed, because I know it did make it down to Cologne, but that was a serious problem. What was interesting about that as well is that there were no meaningful books written about how to deal with the sweating sickness, even though by the 1530s it was a known disease. So the Germans wrote down a bunch of ways to possibly combat the disease, but nobody knows what it was. And then during what's called the, by American historians, I haven't seen a non-American historian use this term, but there's this phrase called the mid-Tudor crisis, 
I've not seen it fully defined, but it covers the reign of Mary the First, and sometimes a little bit of Edward the Sixth or Elizabeth the First on either side, if not both. But during the Mid Tudor Crisis in the late mid to late 1550s, you see an outbreak of influenza that killed a lot of people, including possibly Mary herself and also Reginald Pole. And then there, if we continue forward, there was that outbreak of plague in 1563 that I was telling you about. And it's not really until the 1570s that Parliament kind of wakes up and says, you know, maybe we should do something to contain this. And some of that has to do with medical ideas and thoughts and philosophies, which, of course, are nowhere near what we have now. And, for example, one of the earliest plague treaties was originally written by, I believe it was John Moulton in the 1470s, I believe. And he was translating a work by John of Burgundy, but Moulton was a Dominican friar. And so he was saying that people who were very sinful were more likely to become ill with plague than anyone else. And so that doesn't really help anybody. I mean, it's an interesting way of explaining your environment, but if, if, the thought is that, oh, only the sinful will get plague. That doesn't help. And he gave all sorts of astrological reasons for why there was plague and this, that, and the other thing. And touching again on the concept of medicine, particularly in the early modern period, medicine and food recipes often went, there is a very, very fine line between the two of them. So if you read recipes or cookbooks or whatever you want to call them or miscellanies from the 16th century, you'll frequently see something described as medicine. Like today I was working on something that was a cure for jaundice, but when I read it, it looked like a 16th century recipe for posset, except the spices and such that were used in it were not as expensive as what would have been used in 16th century posset. What I'm really curious about is how they responded um, to an outbreak of the plague. I mean, of course, the first thing that comes into my head is Monty Python um, and, you know, them yelling, bring out your dead at the end. But was there anything set in place where people just knew? Because it sounds like there wasn't really much oversight as far as this went. Did people just know, hey, we need to stay indoors or we need to stay away from other people? Or did they just continue living life like they would have before? How did that all work? I'm under the impression that it was a little bit of both continuing to live your life because we have to keep in mind that people back then didn't have the luxuries that we do today in the sense that if it's harvest time and you don't go out and harvest, everyone's going to starve. Right. And so I think it was a little bit of that. And then also, if you knew that your neighbor had disease in their house, you might not go to their house for a while. And then, like I was mentioning before, when you get into the middle to the end of Elizabeth's reign, there are some plague ordinances put in place to try and prevent disease. Um, sometimes there would be a marking on the house as far as I can recall, but also there was that very important job of a seeker within a parish who was usually a woman. It was thought that women had a lot of familiarity with what could be, could have killed someone or what was lethal to people because it's usually women who would wash corpses and prepare them for burial. So if somebody died from, you know, being a knight and was killed in battle, okay, well, your wife or the women in your family would dress your body and they'd see, well, you know, I bet you that that sword to the stomach probably didn't help you. So they could tell that or they could tell, oh, hey, this person has these telltale bubo signs on their body that looks a lot like plague. And so women have this job partially to help them make money because they were impoverished. 
and also partially because they were thought to have a way better knowledge of what causes of death looked like than men did because women had historically been the ones to prepare bodies for burial. So you would have seekers go to the house of someone who was suspected of having recently died of plague and they would determine yes or no. And then they would report back to the parish. What did they do with the bodies of all these people who died? Depends on the circumstances. Of course, we have the famous plague pits and those are still being discovered here and there where they would just do these mass burials because so many people died Again, like we were talking about before, 20,000 people in a year died between London, the cities of London and Westminster. And these were not big cities back then. I mean, they were big cities for the time, but overall the populations were just much, much smaller than we have now. And I'm not sure sure what the percentage, or actually I do know. Some argue that that particular outbreak of influenza in the 1550s combined with the outbreak of plague in the early 1560s, killed about 20% of the population of England. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Heather, you know, every time you come on, we cover such a great array of of subjects and the time just flies by. And I, I hate to say we've reached the end for today. So I really want you to let people know where they can find you, how they can support you and how they can become your best friend too. Absolutely. And I just want to respond or say one more thing on a happy note. Just remember that if our predecessors went through all that horror, I'm hoping that we as a planet can come through this current horror with COVID-19. So please keep your chin up, especially if you're going through something rough and hang in there. Um, To find me, my website is maidensandmanuscripts.com. I'm also on Facebook under Heather R. Darcy Historian. And in case you don't remember, my last name is spelled D-A-R-S-I-E. I'm on Twitter at H.R. Darcy History, and I'm on Instagram at H. Darcy History. I don't know why, but I made I kind of forgot my, my middle initial when I made my Instagram (laughs) site. So, um, always feel free to drop me a line. I love hearing from people. No questions are dumb. And don't forget you're on clubhouse too. I am on clubhouse. That's right. I've been enjoying clubhouse. So I started doing a thing on, uh, Friday nights and I realize this isn't conducive to people who live outside the United States, but I'm doing a Renaissance reading book club. So right now we're going through Sir Thomas More's Utopia. It starts at nine o'clock central time. So that would be 10 o'clock PM East coast time. And I believe seven o'clock PM West coast time. And we just kind of talk a little bit about the background and what we've read so far. And then I will read you parts of Utopia and then we'll discuss it. And then uh, I think after, utopia i want to move on to machiavelli's the prince so my goal is to kind of get through books that were either written or popular during the 16th century so we can kind of see how people thought back then and discuss whatever parallels there might be to now and if you're not yet on clubhouse you do need an invite um but you could probably hit up either heather or i we might have a couple of invites available um it's such a great platform. It's um, something that I'm hoping to utilize more in the future to do like a live show. So I know that would be something that would be exciting. Please get on Clubhouse if you're not already. If you need uh, more information, let me know. But otherwise, Heather, thank you so much for lucky number six. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to say one last thing. As you guys probably know, I am the author of Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister. It is available as hardback 
paperback and Kindle in the U.S. and the U.K. And my second book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is slated to be released in May of 2022. And now, Ask the Expert. Hello and welcome back to Ask the Expert. I'm Steph Storer and I'm here with author historian Joanna Armand to discuss the legendary Margaret of Anjou. Thank you for joining us, Joanna. Thank you. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. So I always like to kick things off at the beginning. I'm going to go to our first listener question. This is from Al Pratt and actually Alan Samek had a similar question. They both wanted to know, with regards to Margaret of Anjou, what was her early life like? And did anything from her upbringing in France prepare her, possibly, for her life in England? Ah, now, that's a good question. She was actually the younger daughter of um, René of Anjou, the, um, a French count. What are the? I think she was the fourth of ten children, actually. I know that sounds like a lot. She was the last one who really survived infancy. She wasn't really wasn't that important, but she wasn't brought up in poverty either. I mean, her father was a wealthy man. And then age of about seven to eight, she was actually sent to live with her grandmother, Yolanda of Aragon, who you may have heard of. She's very famous. She was an early patron of Joan of Arc. Um, the King of France married her daughter. So, yeah, she was a mother-in-law of the King of France. And... I do like to think she might have learned a bit from her grandmother, that a bit of her grandmother rubbed off on her, so to speak, because at that time her father was a prisoner of war. So she grew up with her grandmother and her mother really running everything. So she was used to the idea that a woman could run things, if necessary, if there was no man around to do it. Um, her grandmother sadly died when she was 12, and then she went to live in the French court for a time. Um, she was actually described as being a very accomplished and beautiful a very beautiful girl. Um, they had, I think it was Pierre de Brise, the Seneschal of Normandy, was her champion. So she was well known. She was well liked in France. I think her grandmother's legacy, though, was the re was the one that really influenced her the most. So let's turn a little bit now. So she's in England and she's married to Henry the Sixth. Yeah. Techno wonders: Is it true? that the English were disappointed in the choice of bride for their king. Um, who arranged this marriage? Were there other available brides? Were there no other available brides? What is the background that led up to them getting married? The background really was, um, yes, it's generally said that the Duke of Suffolk, William de the Pole, Duke of Suffolk, arranged their marriage, but he was acting as the king's proxy. You know, the king was involved with this. Henry VI was involved in this. He was in his 20s by then. He was a grown adult. He was one who was allowed to enter into the negotiations at the time. What was really going on is they wanted a treaty with France. King Henry wasn't massively in favour of continuing the war indefinitely, although some people in his court were in favour. Um, let's say technically the Duke of Suffolk arranged the marriage. There were other people involved, though. There were a lot of other people involved. And the strange thing is a lot of people in England at the time weren't that concerned about it. The evidence of them really, really objecting comes from a lot later. At the time, there were pageants, there were celebrations when she arrived in England. There was, um, oh, I don't know what you'd call it, whether you'd call it a pageant or just a, a big party, really. She was um, bedecked in cloth of gold with a crown. 
She was escorted by hundreds of knights and men at arms. It, it, it was just celebration for ages. You know, everyone praised her as the hope of England, the beautiful bride of the king. It was, she was given a good, good reception, let's just say that. It wasn't really until the 1450s and after Henry's deposition that they started saying, oh, no, this is terrible. Oh, no, this is awful. We sold her. The king sold his soul for nothing. We got nothing out of this marriage. To be honest, it was a case of sour grapes that the English had lost France and they wanted someone to blame for it. And, of course, what did cause controversy a few years late after her marriage was giving up um, the county of Maine in France. Again, Henry did know about that. That did prove controversial. It wasn't necessarily something that Margaret herself was massively involved in because she was only 15 at the time when she married. And it's been speculated that they were, they gave up that particular area of France in the hopes of better defending the rest, in the hopes of perhaps getting it back later on. But, of course, people at that time didn't see it, didn't see it that way. They saw it as a betrayal. They saw it as, oh, maybe the Queen had connived with her relatives in France to stab England in the back. There's not a lot of evidence that she, that she actually did that. She was trying to keep everyone happy. But people will say what they will say. Now, speaking of their marriage, Sherry O'Neill had an interesting question. Yeah. We know that Henry VI was a rather devout man. And she's wondering, did they really need a tutor <laughs> to help them complete the, quote, marital act that they needed to complete? Let's just say I found no evidence or any mention of that type of thing. Um, I've, I think it's a bit of a myth, this idea that he was so pious he didn't know what to do. Henry's piety was not in that kind of way. I mean, the whole medieval conception of chastity wasn't the way we think of it. I think I mentioned to you earlier that there was a case um, in the 15th century of a family from, I don't know, I can't remember quite where it was, it might be in Norfolk or somewhere, that they were described as chaste and yet they had nine children. So obviously chastity didn't mean not having any sex, it just meant not sleeping around. So yeah, I'm quite sure Henry would have known what to do. I don't think he needed to do that. He was just described as not being the type who would have a lot of affairs, who had premarital affairs particularly. He, shall we say, he'd like to preserve his purity before marriage. So, no, I don't think he needed a tutor. I think he, I think he, he, he knew his duty as a monarch, let's just say that. <laughs> right, right. Now, okay, so you brought up the affairs. So I think this is a nice segue to Ellie Webster. Actually, there's a couple of people that brought this up. Ellie Webster, Jody Field, and Dwayne Moore. Oh, yes. Yes. yes, this came yes. up a lot. Yes. Um, apparently, she is Those. Yeah, she's not known for being very chaste. Um, so do you have any information on whether or not Margaret of Anjou had affairs? And furthermore, did those affairs possibly lead to children and i think people are hinting is it possible that their son edward was actually not yes i've got a oh lot i can't to wait okay let's one. hear it <laughs> yes a lot to say on that one in terms of evidence well we can't know exactly either way i mean literally i mean people didn't write down oh yeah i had an affair on this day and the other day but medieval queens medieval noblewomen weren't alone a lot 
It would be so much helpful, so much more helpful if they did, though, right? <laughs> yeah, they didn't leave diaries. <laughs> Just check their diary. Yeah, well, I had an affair on this day. Yeah, the adultery of a queen was high treason. So they're not going to go admitting to that thing, for goodness sake. Right. They could be burned at the stake for this. Um, yeah, medieval queens weren't alone. They had attendants around them all the time. They had ladies in waiting around them all, all the time. They really, if if they got up to anything, people would have known it. But the main thing with Margaret of Anjou, the main, the big deal with all the whole talk about affairs is this was something that came up mostly after 1460. And it was a rumour that very much comes from her political adversaries. This comes from the Yorkists. This comes from Richard Duke of York, Edward IV, from the Earl of Warwick. These are all people who've got an agenda. They've got a reason and they to want to discredit her. And I think it's put across a lot with the historians, the idea of Margaret as the transgressive woman. She was the woman who transgressed social expectations. She was seen as sort of the disorderly woman. And so that sort of social transgression, the transgression of the social boundaries of not doing what a woman was expected to do was linked together with moral transgression. Sort of like if she's not keeping in her place in this way, she must be transgressing her place in the other way as well. She must be sleeping around. And of course, sad to say, in the 15th century, the way that you discredited a woman was you accused her of having an affair. It was just the way it was done. That was like the ultimate form of disgrace. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that she had an affair. There's none. I mean, people might say that, oh, there's none against it either. Yeah, that's true. I think it depends on, really depends a lot on who you want to believe. Um, the historians who say she does, a lot of it doesn't add up. One of them, for example, is John Ashdown Hill, who alleges her son was conceived in April of 1453. But if that were the case, then he was born four to th three to four months premature. And six months babies didn't tend to survive in the 15th century. <laughs> Let's just say that much. <laughs> yes. Um Highly unlikely, I would say. I mean, all the people that have been banded about, one of them, the Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, was about 20 years her senior, and she saw him as a father figure rather than anything else. His son would only have been about probably 15 at the time when her son was born, so, and he wasn't even at court then. So highly, un highly unlikely they were up to anything. Um, the Duke of Suffolk was well, well and truly dead by that time. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe the rumours of an affair. As I say, this was spread a lot later on by people who had an interest in discrediting the Lancastrian dynasty and in discrediting her. So you may believe it if you All wish, right, so then we'll but... leave the rumours. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we'll leave the rumours and the gossip then, and we will just continue talking about her son a little bit. Yeah. So the Shadows of Seymour was uh, asking what her relationship was with her son. She seems to have been like any good mother. She did love her son. She loved her child. Um, the fact that he was her only child in particular, she probably had a closer relationship with him than perhaps other queens and other women who had four or five children. I mean, she probably, she probably did spoil him to an extent, I mean, according to the um, modern ideas. She had him with her for, for quite a lot of the time. Though of course, he was in the care of women for the first seven years of his life. Um, there were particularly times in his early life and infancy when she had him with her at some of her favourite palaces and castles. I think she took him a lot to Greenwich and to Coventry with her. 
it's basically just to keep him safe a lot of the time, really, because things were so turbulent in the country that she wanted to make sure she was by his side. And honestly, I think in some, in some cases, she wanted to make sure he couldn't be abducted or anything like that. There was always the possibility that, you know, that her enemies might use him as a bargaining tool. Sure, she needed to keep him around. <laughs> um Okay, now on to the Wars of the Roses. Yay. <laughs> I feel like we could really spend a lot of day. We could spend all day really oh, talking about could. this. You could. Yes. Um, but since we don't have that kind of time, we'll just go with a couple of questions yes. here. So generally speaking, what do you think um, Margaret of Anjou's plans were during the Wars of the Roses with regards to the military? That question comes from main thing. To be honest, she she wasn't that involved with things militarily. It's a bit of a myth with this, really. Um, she, it, you notice that during her battles, she doesn't actually take a direct role very often in battles. Usually she's staying somewhere nearby. She left, to be honest with you, a lot of the military planning to her generals, mostly to the nobles. Um, one of her major ones was Henry Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and then later on his younger brother, most of these were seasoned fighters as it was, and she left most of the planning, the preparation, things to them. The trouble with a lot of the battles, though, in the Wars of the Roses, is there wasn't much preparation involved. You know, the two armies were marching towards each other and just came upon each other all of a sudden, for the most part. <laughs> there wasn't a huge deal of preparation. Things just went horribly wrong. The weather was awful. They weren't ready. Sometimes both sides weren't ready. One particular battle was fought in a huge snowstorm with very poor, very poor visibility. And uh, that got lost, actually, because they one person mistook a Lancastrian banner for a Yorkist banner, and then they started firing on each other in chaos. So she didn't really have a great deal of things to do with preparation. In terms of her goals, she just wanted her dynasty on the throne and her son to be king. I mean, it wasn't unrealistic expectation. That's what she married the King of England with the expectation of. She just wanted her dynasty to be secure. Sure. So, okay, so then if it was a myth that she was very involved, um, Sylvia Barbara's question is probably a good one because we've heard that she wore armor. Is that untrue as well? I've not seen any specific evidence for her wearing armor. There's pictures of her wearing armor, but I'd say most of the actual major battles in the Wars of Roses, she's not on the battlefield. She's some distance away, usually in church or castle, you know, watching out for what's going on. You know, the outcome of the battle is told to her afterwards. And There's some cases where she's nearby, but she's not actively participating in the fighting. I mean, her son, when he fought at the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, obviously would have worn armour. He was at the age of 17. But whether she did, not really. No, it wasn't. She wasn't trained to use weapons. It, it was quite uncommon. And especially as, as a younger daughter of a noble family, she particularly wouldn't have been. I mean, if she'd been the, an only child and a girl, then perhaps. But in that context, no, she probably didn't wear armor. Okay. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> no, no. Uh, thank you for clearing it up. So she may not have been necessarily participating in the battles, obviously, but we do still kind of see her as a leader. She was garnering um, support a lot of the time. She was garnering exactly. support from, for her relatives, particularly her relatives in France. She would write letters. She would go to them. She would try to gain their support gain soldiers, gain troops, gain financial support for her cause. 
Um, she was making alliances. She was just doing everything she could, really. The trouble is people just kept stabbing her in the back and letting her down. <laughs> they'd say that they'd provide troops for her and then they'd go, they'd go and not do it or they'd do it for someone else. Or they'd say, oh, yes, 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 certainly we'll help you and just ignore her. Do you think that that then leads to the reputation she has as being vicious or kind of ruthless and cold-hearted. We had a lot of people write in about this too. Yeah. I'll shout out to Shadows of Seymour and Neha Roy, uh, who specifically wanted to understand if you believe that she was as just kind of generally mean as she is portrayed. No, no, I don't believe she was as mean as she, she's portrayed. I mean, to be honest with you, even the, the first part of Walls of Roses, I've seen it written before 1453. She wasn't openly enemies with anyone. She got on um, in the early 1450s anyway with Richard Duke of York's wife, Cecily Neville. They, they were actually quite good friends for a time. <sighs> Whether she was, if she was vicious and aggressive, she wasn't any worse than the men. The men were doing the awful things left, right and centre. There was one particular nobleman who liked impaling people. <laughs> Yeah, I liked impaling execution victims. It said he learned it from Vlad the Impaler. I kid you not. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, he actually served in Romania for a time and may have met Vlad the Impaler. Um, that's another issue. Was she vicious and aggressive? No different from what the men were doing around her. She was literally just trying to fight fire with fire in this regard. She thought she'd, she just had to do what she had to do. And if it meant stepping up and being ruthless, then she would do it because she was as she saw it, protecting her family and her dynasty, that, you know, being meek and working behind the scenes hadn't worked for her. They'd still won, so she had to start stepping up and doing what she had to do. Okay, thank you. So moving forward a little bit, now that we've cleared that up, Atia Ash, 95, wanted to focus a little bit on her time away from London, if you could explain that a little bit, and then how and why did Edward the Fourth bring her back and then again once she was back what was it like was she in custody kind of could you explain some of the situation around that yeah um so from the battle of tewkesbury that was on the welsh borders that was where her son was killed and the lancashians were finally defeated she was found they actually say a day or two after the battle i mean one 20th century book said she was found half dead in a chariot that's probably not the case she was probably taken from her place of refuge. She was actually taken to Coventry first. That was, I think, where she officially met Edward IV. Um, she was put in his victory parade. Some say she was driven in a chariot. She was completely silent, staring. She didn't say a thing. She was taken to the Tower of London because it wasn't so much a prison in those days. It was more a royal palace and a royal castle. Um and she was taken to the Tower of London because London was the base. London was the place you had to secure. And there were actually still a couple of threats to London after that. There was still one particular lord who actually laid siege to London very shortly after the battle. So they just wanted to, wanted to know that she was safe. Um, I know one of your questions actually is where was she lodged in the Tower? We don't know. There's no particular references to where, which part of the Tower she was kept in. But she was taken there because it was the power base. She was kept away from her husband, though. That's one thing that's very significant. She was kept away from Henry. By this time, she was probably about 41. She may still have been fertile. We don't know. She may still have been able to have children. And that's interesting. Then there's no better way to 
make sure she wasn't then to just not have her near yes. have them near each and other. And then he was murdered the day after. So after the right. Tower of London, she was taken to Windsor for a time, um, and then she actually went to, was sent to live with one of her oldest friends, um, Alice Chaucer. Oh no, granddaughter of Geoffrey Chaucer. Yes, we've heard of her. Yes, the Duchess of Suffolk. Um, she may even have stayed at a place called Yulm, where she had a house there. She was in England for several years, actually, after the battle. I think it wasn't until 1476 she was finally ransomed back to France. So she spent some time in the country with one of her oldest friends. Um, she was finally sent back to France. She lived out the rest of her days in relative obscurity. I think she lived with her father for a time, lived on one of her father's lands. Her father didn't die, I think, until the year before her, actually. So her life was... She still had one of her old ladies-in-waiting, actually, with her, one of her particularly faithful ladies-in-waiting who stayed with her. She had servants and things. She was fairly comfortably lodged. She wasn't like a prisoner, but obviously, psychologically, she was completely broken. We're going to switch a little bit now to her son's marriage. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship with him between him and Anne Neville? Crystalyn asks if she approved of the marriage, and was it her that chose her as a bride? Again, yes. It's one of those prevailing myths that she treated Anne Neville terribly and hated her. Um, what I can see, she hated her father more than anything else, <laughs> Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. But by the time it came to their alliance, she could, I think, she saw that it was necessary, that it might have been the last and the only hope of regaining the throne for her son. Um, there's not a great deal of evidence about the relationship between them. They were only married for about six months or so. There's no specific evidence that he mistreated her or did anything bad to her, or even that Margaret mistreated her or did anything bad to her. In fact, I think there was some evidence very later on that Anne Neville actually visited her a few times of her own free will, which doesn't suggest they had a terrible and awful relationship, to me at least. She had nothing against her in particular. She was a young girl, like Margaret herself had been a very young girl when she married the King of England. She might have sympathised with her to some extent, you know, realised that she didn't have a lot of choice in the matter, that she was used as her father's pawn. I say it was really the Earl of Warwick she had the problem with, not his daughter. And it was just a useful marriage and alliance at that time. There's some people who possibly have posited that she might have intended to annul the marriage later on and find a better bride for him. We don't know that for certain. Um, yeah, there's no, and there isn't a great deal of evidence either way. There's no evidence that she was really horrid to her. Okay, well, I think B Word 85 <laughs> has a great question to wrap things up here. He would like if you could give us your view of what do you think Margaret of Anjou's legacy would be? Oh. For those that don't necessarily know much about her. Yes. What would you tell us that's a good one well, i think margaret's real tragedy is that history is written by the winners if she'd won if the lancastrians had won she'd probably be considered to be a very very great queen i mean she did try at one point to claim to to claim to be the regent for her son the year after he was born 1454 she claimed the regency I mean, we think, oh, in England, that was so awful, that was so radical. In France, they'd had regents, female regents, for a long time. A lot of other European states, they'd had female regents for a long time. It wasn't something that was 
out of the ordinary, at least as far as she was concerned. Well, I think if I had to say her main legacy, I mean, in the short term, she was defeated. Her son was killed. The Lancastrian dynasty was defeated. But I would say in some respects, her legacy was the Tudors because she was the aunt of Henry Tudor, of course. He was um, the son of Edmund Tudor, who was Henry VI's half-brother. And, of course, the Tudors gave us our first crowned Queen of England. So, in a sense, Margaret did have the last laugh in that way, because her and her husband actually arranged the marriage of Margaret Beaufort to Edmund Tudor. That's very interesting. Thank you. Okay, so thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. We're so happy to have you. Thank and you. All your interesting points of Mar- uh, about Margaret of Anjou were great. Thank you again. Oh, so I wanted to talk to you about you a little bit. I know that you've got a book out that I want to tell everybody about called The Warrior Queen, uh, which is about Ethelfled, which is a really great uh, read. Yes, Lady of the Mercians. Exactly. Yes, and uh, <laughs> since you are the expert about... Margaret of Anjou, can you tell us a little bit about the book that you have just finished that we can expect to see sometime about her? Yes. So my next book is going to be a biography of Margaret herself. How wonderful. Um, The working title is Margaret of Anjou, She-Wolf of France, Twice Queen of England. I remember my old professor actually didn't approve of the term She-Wolf of France because he said it wasn't used by contemporaries. It was first used by Shakespeare. (laughs) It's what the Duke of York calls her when she's about to kill him and starts hurling abuse and calls her the She-Wolf of France. Um, that's an attention yeah, grabber, I'm, though. I think it's a great title. Yes. It's a great, it's a great attention grabber. Yes, the only one who's called She Wolf was Isabella of France, um, the wife of Edward the Second. But yes, it is an attention grabber. Um, I, I hope to do Margaret justice and dispel some of the myths about her, some of the things that still endure to this day. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of ironic that when the longest reigning monarch in British history is a woman, we're still clinging to all these old and somewhat sexist myths about Margaret of Anjou, most of whom are spread by men. Of course. Well, I can't wait to read it and I can't wait till it's out. Um, Thank you so much for being here. And again, just really quickly before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media Ah, and where can they find your current Ethelfled book and all that kind of stuff? (laughs) Well, my Ethelfled book should be available everywhere books are sold. Um, It's definitely on Amazon. I know that much. You can also get it from the publisher's website, Amberley Publishing, and I believe they do set they do send to the United States. Um, there's also also always the book depository, which has international delivery everywhere. I am on Facebook. You can find me under Joanna Arman Author, and I am on Twitter as well. I think I am the Grumpy History Lady. <laughs> You did not seem grumpy with us at all. You were a pleasure. <laughs> I know. And I do have a website, um, historyladysite.com. I changed it from WordPress. So the address has actually changed, but you should be able to find me. There actually is another historyladywordpress.com, but mine is thehistorylady.site.com, as I recall. I don't update that anywhere near as much as I should. But yes, Facebook and Twitter are usually good places to find me at the moment. You can also send me a direct message through that. And there there are more books in the pipeline. I may or may not have signed some contracts. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations. We are all looking forward to them. 
Thank you so much, Joanna. And now, a brief history. In the Tudor era, women were taught from birth that their most precious possession was their virtue. Once lost, it could never be redeemed. Women needed to carefully guard their reputations and thus their value as a marital partner. A woman who strayed from the path of virtue brought shame to her family. But as we'll see from the next few stories, the consequences of sin varied quite a bit. The gossip mill could be vicious and ruinous. In 1510, Henry VIII had only been king for a year. His wife, Catherine of Aragon, was pregnant, and kings of the era usually took a mistress while their wives were expecting, since sex was thought to be dangerous during pregnancy. A rumor circulated at court that Anne Stafford had become Henry's mistress. Anne Stafford was the sister of the Duke of Buckingham, the highest-ranked noble in the land, and the wife of the Earl of Huntington. Buckingham was infuriated at the idea his sister would demean herself in this way and went to investigate. He was intercepted at the door of his sister's chambers by William Compton, who was the king's groom of the stool. Buckingham and Compton exchanged heated words. When the king heard about the quarrel, he chastised Buckingham, who left court in a huff. So did Stafford's husband, and he took his wife with him. He put Stafford in a convent some 60 miles away. In the midst of all this, Catherine of Aragon also became, as the histories record, quite vexed with her husband, and the resulting storm echoed through the whole court as she wept and raged at her husband. And in this case, Henry might not have actually done anything to deserve it. The angry king expelled Stafford's sister from court, believing that she had told Buckingham about the supposed affair and started this whole mess. The twist is that Stafford may have been having an affair, but not with the king. Her affair might have been with William Compton. In 1527, charges of adultery were brought against Compton, and he was required to swear on the communion host that he had never slept with Stafford while his wife was living. A year later, he died, and in his will, Compton left Anne Stafford some property. And, interestingly enough, founded a chantry in her name, where prayers would be said daily for her soul. Whatever happened with the king or Compton, Stafford's husband apparently forgave his wife, or was convinced of her innocence, because the remainder of their marriage is documented in some of the most charming love letters of the period. The next woman was quite brazen with her wicked ways. Elizabeth Darrell was a maid of honor to Catherine of Aragon and remained loyal to her when Catherine was exiled after Henry VIII annulled their marriage. It's believed that might have been the way that she met the man who changed her life, Thomas Wyatt. It's possible that Wyatt had been sent to interview Catherine's ladies about their loyalties, and that's how they met. Thomas was a poet of renown. He'd once been in love with a young Anne Boleyn, but she had rejected his advances. Wyatt was married but separated from his wife. He'd accused her of adultery, and she'd gone to live with her brother. And for the next decade, the brother would quarrel with Wyatt because he refused to pay anything to support his wife. In 1537, Daryl became Wyatt's mistress. Now, in that era, it was almost an expectation that a man would have a mistress. But she was usually lower in social rank, and the arrangement was discreet. Wyatt and Daryl didn't bother with discretion. Daryl moved into Wyatt's family home and lived with him openly. 
and over the next few years, she'd have several children with him. Her relationship with Wyatt might be why she was refused a place in Jane Seymour's court, although some say she was a member of Jane's household. In 1541, Wyatt was arrested, suspected of treason, and his property was confiscated. Daryl, as a mistress, had no rights to anything, but officials of the court took pity on her because she was pregnant and allowed her to live in the castle while the case was ongoing. Wyatt was released after the young queen Catherine Howard intervened and pleaded for mercy. The king and council agreed on condition that Wyatt go back to his wife, from whom he'd been separated for nearly a decade. An order Wyatt seems to have decided to just ignore. Oddly, no one seems to have tried to enforce it either. But only a year later, Wyatt died of a sudden illness. Daryl was in a precarious position. She had no widow's rights, though Wyatt had left her children some property in his will. Wyatt's eldest son, the son of his wife, actually took pity on the woman his father had loved and took care of her. Around 1554, Daryl married. As we'll see in these stories, marriage seems to have been the refuge women sought, even if it meant accepting a husband of lower social standing. From this point, she fades from the records until her death only a few years later. The next woman was mentioned briefly a few episodes ago when we talked about the Duchess of Norfolk. Bess Holland was the daughter of the Duke of Norfolk's treasurer or chief steward. She was likely supervisor of the wardrobe of the Duke's children, though his wife would later refer to Holland as a low-born churl and diaper scrubber. Holland became Norfolk's mistress around the time Henry VIII became enamored with Anne Boleyn. Norfolk decided he wanted a divorce of his own so that he could marry Holland, but the Duchess wouldn't cooperate and step aside. Norfolk sent his wife to one of his country estates and seized her jewels and finery. He ordered his servants to treat Holland like she was the Duchess, with all its pomp and ceremony. Holland would go to court and become a maid of honor to Anne Boleyn and may have been given one of Anne's prayer books. Norfolk battled with his wife for almost 20 years to get her to agree to end their marriage, but she never would. He was eventually arrested for treason and put in the tower. Both women were interrogated for information on him. Holland told them that Norfolk had said that the obese king had to be moved with a special lift and couldn't possibly live much longer. Those were deadly words. It was treason to imagine the death of a king. Because Holland cooperated, she was given back her jewels and clothing. She may have felt that the relationship was ended. Either Norfolk would be executed or he wouldn't take her back. So she chose to marry. Her husband was a man named Henry Ripps. And though she had to be around 40 years old, she became pregnant quickly. But something went wrong during the birth. A letter from 1548 records that Holland died with child and that the child was ripped out of her belly. In those days, a cesarean was only performed if a woman had already died, since performing one on a living person was considered an act of murder, since there was no way to close the wound. Reps tried to claim tenancy on Holland's property through the child's inheritance rights, but the letter writer thought it was impossible that the baby had survived. But the husbands of fallen women were not always lower in rank. Dorothy Bray was a maid of honor of Queen Catherine Howard. She became the mistress of William Parr, brother of Catherine Parr, 
who would one day become queen herself. The affair was so well known at court that Catherine Howard once made a casual reference to it in conversation when flirting with a man. About three years after being dumped by William Parr, Dorothy Bray married Baron Chandos. They had a long and apparently happy marriage, during which she had five children. After his death in the 1570s, she married again, this time to a man who was about 20 years her junior, William Knowles, later Earl of Banbury. This marriage was not a happy one, as Knowles became obsessed with a young woman who was his ward, Mary Fitton. Interestingly enough, it's theorized that Fitton was Shakespeare's Dark Lady. Dorothy conveniently died, and Knowles asked Fitton to marry him. She refused. Soon afterward, she became the mistress of the Earl of Pembroke and gave birth to his son. He admitted the child was his, but refused to marry Fitton, even after a furious Queen Elizabeth had him put in fleet prison for his defiance. Both Pembroke and Fitton were expelled from court. Her parents reportedly horrified. Her mother wrote to her sister that she wished she died in childbirth with Fitton rather than face the sorrow, grief, and shame. But Fitton was unrepentant. Knowles tried again to get Fitton to accept his suit, but she still refused. It was a bold and surprising choice for the time. Instead of being a countess, she chose to become a mistress again. Now this time to the current vice admiral. And after his death she became the mistress of one of his officers. Now, the officer eventually married her, and it's recorded that Fenton's mother still would have nothing to do with her after she was made an honest woman after becoming his wife. The stories of these women tell us that despite the pressures of society and religion that required women to be pure, to be seen as having any worth, that there were women of the Tudor era who actually made different choices— to reject respectability and follow their hearts. They deserve to be remembered, if only for the courage a choice like that must have taken. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.